Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zosa. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 11925 kHz on the 19 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu. In studio with Anne Musa, Wisani Matebula and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories, an Africa rise and shine at the Sawa. Nigeria's President Muhammadu Buhari urged to resign. Gambia launches Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And the WHO expresses concern over Ebola outbreak in the DRC. In economics news, Nigeria State Oil Company denies existence of fuel subsidy fund. And in sports news, the World Anti-Doping Agency urged to remove cannabis from its banned list of drugs. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. Eritrea has defended its elections to the United Nations Human Rights Council, the HRC, arguing its party to several human rights treaties and has submitted periodic reports regarding its record. The statement issued by the Information Ministry follows an outcry by human rights activists and groups who challenged the election of Cameroon, Somalia and Eritrea on the HRC. Eritrea says it's strongly committed to consolidating the rights of citizens and has made significant strides in improving educational and health services, agricultural productivity, reducing poverty and developing infrastructure. The Human Rights Council is an intergovernmental body within the United Nations system made up of 47 states responsible for the promotion and protection of all human rights around the globe. Liberia's Vice President Jewel Taylor has made demands for a probe into a U.S. educational charity after girls were raped at a school. Last week, charity organization More Than Me admitted to major failings and deeply apologized after the scale of the abuse came to light. The U.S. investigative site ProPublica described how girls were systematically raped at the More Than Me Academy in Liberia's capital, Monrovia. The charity founded the school to empower and educate local girls to save them from prostitution and sexual coercion. Taylor says the office will engage all parties involved to ensure that the current children under the care of the institution are safe and protected. 
A gun and bomb attack at a college in the Crimea in Russia is now known to have killed at least 19 people. Russian investigators say the assault was carried out by an 18-year-old student at a school in the city of Kirsch. The BBC's Olga Ivishna reports. Some of his friends told Russian journalists that he actually uh, was pretty dissatisfied with his study in the college and a few days before the attack he spoke about revenge to teachers. As far as we know, he bought the rifle officially something like a month ago, which is slightly strange because he's so young. Maybe a week before the attack he bought something like 150 pieces of ammunition. And we saw the videotape which was filmed by one of the witnesses during the attack. We could hear at least 11 shots. First of all, was a blast and then this guy started shooting. Turkish crime scene investigators have left the Saudi consulate in Istanbul after searching the premises and consular vehicles as part of an investigation into missing journalist Jamal Khashoggi. The inspections in the consulate using bright lights to illuminate the consulate's garden were the second search there this week. Authorities spent about nine hours there on Monday. Turkish and Saudi investigators also spent almost nine hours in the Saudi consul's residence earlier. Khashoggi, a critic of the Saudi leadership and United States resident, has not been seen since entering the building on the 2nd of October. Saudi Arabia denies killing him. The United Nations Syrian envoy Stefan de Mistura has told the Security Council that he will step down at the end of November, briefing the council on the latest political situation in the war-ravaged country. He informed members he was stepping aside for personal reasons. De Mistura becomes the third envoy after Kofi Annan and Lakhdar Brahimi to hold and resign the position during the more than seven-year conflict. Having consulted the Secretary General, let me also give you some heads up if I may. I will myself be moving on as of the last week of November. I've had the honor to serve for four years and four months as Special Envoy. I've for some time been discussing with the Secretary General my desire for purely, purely personal reasons to move on. I've deeply appreciated his constant support in Vice Council on this matter. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zosa. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
United Nations envoy to Syria, Stefan de Mistura, will use his final month in office to push for the formation of a constitutional committee charged with rewriting the war-torn country's constitution. During a briefing to the Council in New York, the 71-year-old envoy, who has led UN mediation efforts on Syria for over four years, announced he would step aside for personal reasons in the last week of November. But sticking points about the composition of the Constitution Committee remain, particularly with the Syrian government. Sharon Bryce-Peace reports. Stefan de Mistura is the longest serving of UN Syria envoys, following in the footsteps of former UN Chief Kofi Annan and Algerian diplomat Lakhdar Brahimi, and says he's doing so because of family commitments. I've been... Uh always been indicating to the Secretary General my plans for personal reasons, which is not health, it's family basically. <laughs> so no speculation on that, I am I'm touching wood, I'm fine and I'm not even tired because this has been giving me a lot of adrenaline, this type of mission. It is actually because there is also a family which deserves after four years and four months a little bit of attention. So it was always the plan to do it sometime in November. But uh, the whole idea is to actually try to do it in the most effective way. Demastura will travel to Damascus in a few days' time for talks with the Syrian government that has objected to the composition of the proposed Constitutional Committee. A Syria peace conference held in Russia last January agreed to the formation of a committee comprising 150 members, with a third of those chosen by the government, a third from the opposition, and a third by the United Nations. Syria has objected to the UN list made up of experts, civil society, tribal leaders and women among others. Our assessment is that if there is a political will, there is no reason, no reason whatsoever for the Constitutional Committee not to be able to be convened during the months of November. We are ready. We have done a lot of homework, 10 months of preparation. The main reason so far for the delay in conveying the in Geneva, the Constitutional Committee, is the difficulties that the government of Syria has to accept the current third list that has been prepared by the UN as per the Sochi Declaration and the Resolution 2254. A group of current and incoming European Council members gave its full backing to the Special Envoy. Listen to Swedish Ambassador Olaf Skuer. We express our full support for the efforts of Stefan de Mistura, Special Envoy for Syria, to establish urgently a credible and legitimate constitutional committee to advance the United Nations efforts to achieve a sustainable political solution to the conflict in Syria in line with the Security Council Resolution 2254. We underscore the Special Envoy's authority to establish an inclusive constitutional committee, including the participation of a minimum of 30% women, that will begin the work of drafting a new Syrian constitution and laying the groundwork for free and fair UN-supervised elections consistent with Security Council Resolution 2254. The UN envoys made clear they would not be ready to convene a committee that is not credible and balanced. I'm Sherman Bryce-Pease in New York. A second aid worker held hostage by Islamist militant group Boko Haram in Nigeria has been executed 
After a negotiating deadline expired, Hawu Mohamed Liman was kidnapped by Boko Haram in March, along with two other aid workers, during an assault on a military compound in Nigeria's northeastern Borno state. The incident has attracted lots of reactions from the parents of the victim and members of the Nigerian National Assembly with one member calling on President Buhari to step down from office for failing to secure the lives of Nigerians. Collins Atohengbe reports. The government is not just the executive, we are part of government. So we have to work with the executive and indeed the judiciary to find a lasting solution to the situation where Nigerians die in their numbers every day in circumstances that are completely unfortunate. It was his first response to the news of the killing of Ms. Hawa Liman, an aid worker who was executed by Boko Haram terrorists on the 15th of October 2018. The most ear-catching word of Ekweremadu's remark is that Nigerians are being killed in un- unfortunate circumstances and the government, it seems, has not been able to make any breakthrough in the effort to halt the avoidable deaths. Hawa Liman was one of the three aid workers who were abducted by the terrorists on the 1st of March 2018 from an ICRC-operated health center for the internally displaced persons in Ran, in Borno State. Hawas was the second such killings by the sect after the execution of Safira Ahmed 30 days ago. The Deputy Senate President Ike Kweremadu went down memory lane to speak of some of those who have been killed in recent incidents and says the killers will not escape justice. He painted a heart-rending picture of how Hawa was summarily executed. She was forced to kneel down, her hands were tied behind her, and she was shot at very close range. It was in line of service that she met an untimely death. One of her own colleagues was also killed in September in similar circumstances. She too an aid worker. And yesterday, a young lady, Anita, was killed by the police. We owe them the responsibility of protecting them while they do this work, and now that they are dead, we also owe them more responsibility of making sure that they are not dying in vain. And I believe that we can do more in making sure that those responsible for their deaths will never go unpunished. But Mohammed Liman, father of the victim, says he is not convinced that his daughter is dead and gone. He says the remains of his executed girl should be handed to his family for burial so they can have some reprieve over her death. And in fact, we are in doubt because unless we see her corpse or any evidence that shows she is dead, we still believe that she's living. She's living. I appeal to the soldiers to release her because she's a humanitarian worker. She treats the young and the women and she's so helpful even to them. Not only to the whole society, but all that we need now, we appeal to the government, if she was dead at all, we want the cops to be brought and we bury her. That will give us peace of mind. Despite efforts by government to get aid workers released safely, the group carried out their threat in its characteristics of killing defenseless and innocent citizens. What would have been responsible for this unending carnage and the inability of government to put out the fire of insurgency? Members of the House of Representatives in the National Assembly debating the issue of the insecurity says this could continue if not well handled. The legislator says President Buhari should throw in the tower. It is unfortunate to note that despite the negotiation initiated by the government for the self-release of these innocent Nigerians, the Boko Haram said decided to throw the part of tragic execution of two of the captives. If we don't know 
the causes of this and be able to nip them in the bud if we continue to reoccur. We must begin to exercise the powers that we have that the present government under President Mohamed Buhari, having failed to take care of these issues of insecurity, not only in sections of this country, but in the entire country, that the time has come for him to honorably resign. While the debates were ongoing in the National Assembly, the Bring Back Our Girls organization took to the streets to protest not just Hawa's execution, but that the government should ensure the release of all those in captivity. Governor Bono State Kashim Shetima, whose domain is the scene of Boko Haram's action, says while on a condolence visit to the family of the late Hawali man that the perpetrators of these deaths will not go unpunished. It was quite devastating. This is a young girl who paid the ultimate price for the sake of humanity, for the sake of our people. The demented monsters called Boko Haram and the fullness of time they will pay a very heavy price for their crimes against humanity. Looking back at some of the earlier suggestions to shore up security across the country, the Deputy Senate President Ike Kweremado says Nigerian police should be decentralized for effective security monitoring. We as a nation have not been able to provide sufficient security for our citizens and inhabitants. And we will continue to even sound like broken records if we say that the solution for this security in this country is the decentralization of our police system. So that we be able to have sufficient police, well equipped and trained to protect our people. Until we do that, we will continue to have this kind of ugly situation. A situation where we have a centralized police for everybody cannot work in a federal system of government. It has never worked in any place and it will not work in Nigeria. We cannot be toying with the lives of our citizens. And the idea will begin to deal with this better for us because otherwise more people will die. Despite the claim by the Nigerian army that it has decimated Boko Haram's sect about two years ago, there continue to be increases in the level of attack on soft targets. Two months back, the United Nations had appealed to the Nigerian government to help secure the release of the aid workers from the custody of Boko Haram. Is there any hope inside for an end to unwarranted killings of this nature? Only time will tell. From Lagos, Nigeria, I am Collins Nosa Atohengwe for Channel Africa News. Remembering Mama Albertina Sisulu. We will say whatever we are expected to say by the people and we are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the people. We are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the liberation of the oppressed people of this country. Hashtag Mama Sisulu Centenary. Channel Africa. The Gambia has launched a Truth and Reconciliation Commission to shed light on human rights violations and abuses carried out during the reign of former President Yahya Jameh. Inspired by South Africa's investigation into the apartheid era, the 11-member commission will hold witness hearings into Jameh's 22-year era, opening the way to prosecuting those responsible and offering victims and their relatives the hope of closure. Jameh, who came to power in a military coup in 1994, was forced from power after an election defeat. According to Jagen Gray-Johnson from the Open Society Initiative for Southern Africa, or CIS, the establishment of a commission is a key milestone in the Gambia's history and a step towards healing and reconciliation. 
speakers, it's the first time we've ever attempted uh, a truth and reconciliation tradition uh, to try uh, 22 years of uh, tyranny and abuse that have been so well documented over the period. I think also it's a milestone in the sense that uh, you know the victims have been waiting for so long. Um, it's taken almost uh, a year and uh, a year and a half plus um, for for Zara to actually launch this. Now I'm not sure whether you know, we should be rejoicing by virtue of the fact that this has been launched. I'm not sure whether it was necessary to have all the pomp and the cabinetry and the whistles and the bells. But um, the fact is that, uh, yes, uh, the government has promised that they're going ahead with this. Um, so let's see what happens. Now, do you think it will be able to achieve what it has been set out to achieve, Jagan? There's been a lot of false start. I think uh, it's quite ambitious um, in, in, in the way that they set out the parameters. It's extremely wide. Truth, reconciliation, and reparations aspects, um, it's... Uh, the reparations aspect has sent uh, uh, some confusion um, amongst the victims who were thinking that reparations are only money. Secondly, I'm not sure whether uh, the process that they went about um, um, selecting the commissioners uh, was actually followed through to the letter. I'm not so sure about that. Um, and then thirdly, um, the issues around the capacity and the capability um, of the technical team. Um, it's, uh, it's still to be seen um, because the reality is just that, uh, as I said, lots of false starts. Um, the processes that they employed in, uh, in, in, in getting people on board is questionable, but let's see. Press- President Adama Barrow has called on the Gambians to stand together and say never again would a few people uh, subject the country to oppression. Some are saying this process will be used to settle political scores. Uh, Do you think there is a possibility that this process might be reduced uh, to a witch hunt? I don't think um, you know that, that's going to happen. But also, I mean, just going back to Adam Adam's speech um, to say that uh, they wanted to put uh, prioritise the victims and uh, you know ensure that justice is done. I think um, the, the government has clearly demonstrated that the victims are not their priority. That's the first thing. Um, and the reason why I'm saying that is based on the evidence. There is absolutely no budget whatsoever um, to basically, within the national budget itself, that basically takes care of at least the victims association who are currently renting um, majority um, of the resources that they are actually using to basically keep their organization going is externally funded. Um, that's the first thing. Secondly, you know, the 50 million that they're looking at to resource this particular exercise it's also going to be 99.9% of it is going to be the expectation that it's going to be externally funded. So clearly, Barrow is not putting this money where it's now is, and uh, we, we've seen the, 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 the clear evidence that uh, victims are not the central of this administration's priorities. But having said that, I think that uh, also um, on the technical side of it as well, I mean, the reality is that you can't expect to basically clean out a system and expect justice and expect to approve impunity um, and reverse all the injustices that were done. Um, through the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, yet at the same time, the major perpetrators are at the center um, of the security sector. Um, the same guys that were working for China and that were committed or were complicit in some of these atrocities are still in positions of power, are still in strategic positions. So as a result, it begs the question, how can we ask perpetrators to investigate themselves? Um, so it's going to basically be going to be a major cause of undermining, one, the credibility of the process, secondly, the effectiveness, and then thirdly, uh, at the end of the day, it's not going to deliver justice on any way, shape, or form. So the chances are that um, I don't see how far they're going to go with this, but and thirdly, I mean, you know, the, the, the problem that one is going to see is an immense dissatisfaction amongst the, amongst the victims. That's Jagan Gray-Johnson from the Open Society Initiative for Southern Africa, OSISA, speaking to Kumbela Munjelele.
The World Health Organization says a worsening Ebola outbreak in the Democratic Republic of Congo does not constitute an international public health emergency, but stressed in a statement that it remains deeply concerned about the situation. About half of confirmed Ebola cases were reported in the Beni and Mabalako health zones located in the country's North Kivu province. Januel Bamweza reports from Kinshasa. Experts from both the government and NGOs who are deployed in Beni to deal with the outbreak are facing serious challenges in the territory of the North Kivu province. The Ebola epidemic continues to infect and affect a significant number of people in that part of the country. The experts treating the victims are doing what they can to try and contain the outbreak, but really the situation is too complicated. Insecurity due to presence of dozens of armed groups including both local and foreign ones and the tradition of hiding victims and dead bodies are among the challenges complicating the situation. That's indeed what the special representative of the UN Secretary General here, Leila Zerugui, said. It's complicated because first of all you have an epidemic that is new in the region. They don't have this in the past. Then they have the insecurity with armed groups operating in the region, particularly ADF, but other armed groups also, eh? because we have also Mazambe and the Serenove that are in Butembu in, in the south, but still we are in the Grand Nord. The second thing is also we have difficulties in convincing people that they can come and we can cure this disease. In, particularly in Beni, we have some people that hide from those who are treating, you know, they would like to, to use their traditional way of burying their dead, which is very dangerous. That's one of the reasons that is also spreading the disease. So it's not only insecurity, it's also the behavior of people in this particular part of the country. You know, in Bandaka it was easier. We did it in 45 days, we closed it. So we are trying to first build this trust, which is important, and make sure that we ensure the security of people that treat that provide the support to the community to allow us to really close this epidemic and then focus on the insecurity. One of the Monusco contractors is among people who have been hit by the Ebola epidemic. The UN mission staff have said that their colleague was contaminated out of the area. The mission is then taking care of his health and has already identified all his contacts for them to be taken care of as well. Once more, the representative the UN Secretary General Leila Sirugui explains. We have some information about uh, how he contracted the disease. It's outside of, of the area. Uh, we are working first focusing on his health. He's treated. We would like to see him recovering. Uh, that's our first priority. We already identified the contact that we provide them with the treatment and the vaccination. We also disinfected all area where he worked. So we are working very closely to make sure that we will not have more harms and we hope that he will recover and return to his family. The Democratic Republic of Congo's government has registered 214 Ebola cases from which 179 confirmed cases of the Ebola epidemic. Jean-Noël Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa.
Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We are coming to you from Johannesburg, right here in South Africa. I'm Asanda Beda, your host. Change Your Game, the program that promotes open discussion and social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the African entrepreneurship ecosystem. Trevor Mumba now joins us in studio to talk about his entrepreneurial and personal journey. Welcome to Change Again, Trevor. Thank you so much. Um, it's an honor to be here. Palesa Mukubong, who's a designer. Welcome, Palesa, to Change Your Game. Thank you. Your role at the fourth annual Fashion Without Borders event? I just know that I need to arrive and, and, <laughs> okay. and do my part and do it really, really well. The private health sector in South Africa has been challenged to play a part in improving healthcare services in the country through the National Health Insurance. The call has been made at the Healthcare Innovation Summit Africa in Midrand, north of Johannesburg. The summit has been attended by healthcare practitioners, technology experts and investors to discuss how healthcare can be refined through technology. Tabilembele was there. Free State Health MEC Munchen Tsiu has called on the private health sector to be more involved in the provision of access to quality health care for all South Africans. Private companies and institutions in the world, particularly the pharmaceutical ones, are treating healthcare as a commodity for profit. This is an area that needs to be explored as we continue to ascertain an improved provision of service through innovations. Engagements should continue in a, rev- in a view of making healthcare more affordable and accessible to all the people. It's unfortunate that access is limited to those who, who afford through medical aid schemes. The public health sector is currently under severe distress as the demand for healthcare increases. It is currently looking at getting affordable medicines and ensuring constant medicine availability in the country. Rob Wother is from the Affordable Medicines Directorate. We have 7.1 million patients that are HIV positive, which clearly puts a tremendous burden on services. We are distributing through the Department of Health over 134 million units of medicine per annum. Over 16 billion rand is spent on medicines annually in the public sector. And we have 4.2 million patients that are receiving HIV treatment as we speak, with the intention of increasing that by another 2 million. In order to service these patients and to make sure that we don't have a negative impact on health outcomes, it is clear that we need a robust, sustainable and agile supply chain to support all of this. Bortha says more could be achieved if systems were not functioning in silos. Operating in technology, we have a bit of a fragmented IT environment. There's been multiple systems that have been developed over the years, sometimes in isolation, often by multiple donors, multiple implementing partners, and by the Department of Health themselves. So how do we bring all of these together? Also around embracing what you have without tossing it out. Rather use what you've got, but make them work. Paul Saunders from MediSwitch says South Africa should look into using technology in improving the provision of health care. A personalized healthcare solution has to empower the patient to take action and to proactively manage their care. Secondly, the management of chronic disease offers a unique opportunity for a personalized healthcare solution. Thirdly, it is possible to use cognitive technologies, such as artificial intelligence, to predict the onset of a chronic disease for a particular patient. And finally, Personal health insights should be delivered using a technology platform that's been designed with the patient's privacy top of mind. The final day of the summit is expected to discuss issues related to a digital hospital, among other issues. 
amtabile mpele for ABC News in Johannesburg. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, Eritrea defends its election to the United Nations Human Rights Council, arguing its party to several human rights treaties and has submitted periodic reports regarding its record. Liberia's Vice President Joel Taylor makes demands for a probe into a U.S. educational charity after girls were raped at a school. And the Washington Post newspaper publishes the last column it received from the Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Those are the stories making headlines. An inquiry reviewing evidence on Tom Moyani, the suspended head of South Africa's Revenue Service, SARS, has issued an interim report urging President Sol Ramaphosa to fire the tax official. The agency has been plagued by infighting over the last three years and is subject of an ongoing government investigation. Retired Judge Robert Nugent, who is heading the inquiry into Moyani, says the suspended tax chief should be removed from office for the reckless mismanagement of SARS under his tenure. Moyani's lawyer, Eric Mabuza, says the judge, Robert Nugent, is acting outside the scope of his mandate. Naledi Ngobo has more. If the president wanted Mr. Nugent to deal with disciplinary issues uh, or employment issues, he would have said so. We would not have set the, the, the BAM inquiry to deal with disciplinary issues. So Mr. Nugent is trampling outside his terms of reference. But what it does, his recommendation, it's not only undermine the president, it also undermines uh, Mr. BAM. Judge Nugent's interim report, which is based on evidence given at the inquiry, states that the restructuring of SARS that Moyani had undertaken had created a breeding ground for tax evasion. Nugent also cited the deterioration in tax revenue collection and the strained relationship between SARS and National Treasury as grounds for Moyani's removal. Mabuza says Nugent's recommendation that Moyani should be fired is premature. Whatever Nugent is saying, he's only had one side. He's not had the side of uh, Mr. Moyani. So it's quite uh, troubling that uh, a retired judge could come to the conclusion that he came without listening to the other side, especially in the midst of his inquiry. Imagine if tomorrow you have uh, 10, 20 witnesses who go to his commission and say that, in fact, Mr. Moyani is the best uh, commissioner ever. What is he going to make of his recommendation? Chartered accountant and analyst Kaya Sitola says the Nugent Commission has taken an unusual but perhaps necessary approach. So, of course, now for this report to come out, and categorically say, never mind what happens from now on, this man must still be dismissed. It's quite an unusual approach, but perhaps on the balance of what the judge and his fellow commissioners have seen, they seem to think that Mr. Moana's position is untenable. Of course, you imagine that he would challenge those findings on the basis that he hasn't been heard, but of course that is simply because he refuses to participate and cooperate with the commission in any substantive manner. Judge Nugent further recommends that a new commissioner be speedily appointed through an open process as the first step towards restoring public trust in SARS. CEO at the Institute for Tax Professionals, Keith Engel, agrees. 
I think not only the commissioner, but any position should be properly vetted. These are professional positions, and that whoever they are, it shouldn't just be a quiet appointment by the president. I think the person's resume should be shown, and I think there should be some sort of process, probably a parliamentary one, in which people get ratified so that they're known to be you know, of qualified and they belong where they belong. This week, the South Commission of Inquiry will hold public hearings in Pretoria. It is expected to produce its final report in December. I'm Naledi Ngobo in Johannesburg. Are you looking for opportunities to network with Africa's business leaders? Do you want to engage with movers and shakers and participate in master classes presented by industry experts? Then, here's your personal invitation to attend the 4th Annual Africa Women Innovation and Entrepreneurship Forum and Exhibition taking place on the 8th and 9th of November in Cape Town, South Africa. If you want to register, then visit www.awieforum.org. Again, www.awieforum.org. If you cannot make the event, then don't worry. You can follow it through live broadcasts on Channel Africa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. The Port Elizabeth High Court in South Africa has postponed the case against the controversial Nigerian pastor Timothy Omotoso to Monday. This is after witness Cheryl Zondi told the court that Omotoso allegedly raped her at various places when they traveled for church events. During cross-examination, Zondi told the court that she thought of approaching the police in Durban, but alleges that she decided against it because some of them were part of Omotoso's protocol observers. Anda Ngonji reports. Hundreds of former government employees and the families of those who have already died turned up at the Toyando Stadium to get feedback. For years, they have been engaging the national government and the Office of the Public Protector over the matter. Earlier this year, the Finance Department referred the matter to a firm of actuaries to calculate the amount due to the workers and to establish how many should be paid. In 1996, the amount was 864 million is now running into billions of rands. Spokesperson of the Wembe Concerned Pension Group, Chimangazo Chiorori, explains how the money was paid to them in 1992. In 1992, the then leader of the military council in the then vendor, Brigadier Ramshana, who later became a general, decided to privatize the pension fund. And part of the money was paid to the beneficiaries. And some money was left behind in the fund, which, when in 1996, the money was transferred to Pretoria, 864 million rand was still in that fund. So that is the money that we are saying. It belongs to us. We need to be paid. And by now, if it was invested, it would have grown up to some couple of billion, billion rands. Shiori says they will approach the court to order National Treasury to pay them. We want to take the government to the Constitutional Court. We- we'll come back to that Omotoso story um, a bit later in the day. A new film that shows uh, Catholic priests getting drunk and sexually abusing children has become a big hit in Poland, a strongly Catholic country. Breaking box office records in its first weekend, the film 
Clare, or clergy in English, deals with the problem of child sex abuse in the church, an issue that has not been widely investigated in Poland, unlike in countries such as Ireland, Australia and the United States. The Polish church is refusing to comment, but some cities have banned the film. The BBC's Adam Easton reports from Warsaw. I'm at a new stand in Warsaw and I've just picked up some of the newspapers and uh, this story is dominating the headlines. The front page of the Gazette of Wyborcza newspaper reads, several Polish bishops have already apologized for the sins of their priests, but a substantial number of priests don't want to see the problem of paedophilia. Then it says that more than two and a half million people have watched the film Clergy, making it this year's most watched film. I would like people to leave the cinema after seeing this film and look at a priest as a person, not as a saint. One who is accountable if he commits a crime. This film is mainly addressed to Catholics. I want them to reflect whether they are co-responsible for what they have just seen on the screen. That's director and co-screenwriter Wojciech Smarzowski, whose film tells the story of three priests confronting their demons. One is an alcoholic who gets one of his rural parishioners pregnant and tells her to have an abortion. Another is an ambitious schemer, more than happy to take and offer bribes, and who blackmails his archbishop to allow him to fulfill his dream of working in the Vatican. The third narrowly escapes an angry lynch mob after facing accusations of raping a young altar boy. Poland's Catholic bishops are refusing to comment, but some priests, including Father Henryk Zielinski, say the movie is merely a blunt instrument designed to damage the church. Clergy is a propaganda film. It's very one-sided. I think there's too much ideology in it and too little real art. If the artistic message is dominated by ideology, then the art suffers. Mr. Smarzowski admits his movie concentrates on the dark side of the church, but says that's the privilege of the storyteller. It's not a documentary. All the characters and situations are fictitious, but they are based on things that happen in real life. The film has only been in cinemas for 10 days, and already we have received signals from priests that they want to give us material for a sequel. In Warsaw, several hundred people are marching for the first time in a protest against priests who rape and sexually abuse children. One banner is a paedophile map, showing the places all across the country where it's known priests have abused those in their care. Activists read out victims' testimonies. Marek Lyszynski was sexually abused by a priest as a 13-year-old. He runs the Don't Be Afraid Foundation that helps abuse victims. I am a victim, and I cannot agree to the way the church deals with victims. They do not take us seriously. They transfer the perpetrators, and they use their social position. It's time for Polish society to wake up. These are not isolated cases. It's a huge problem. Mr. Lyszynski says no one knows the true scale of the problem, because unlike in other countries, it has not been thoroughly researched. Until now, priests in Poland have mostly been convicted of crimes as individuals. But in a recent landmark ruling, a Catholic society was ordered to pay one million zwotis, 
That's more than $250,000 in damages to a woman who, as a 13-year-old, was imprisoned and raped by a priest for more than 10 months. Some Polish bishops have apologized for the crimes committed by priests, and they are soon planning to publish their own report on sexual abuse in the church. But Mr. Leszczynski, that's not enough. He wants the church to open up its archives, introduce transparent trials, pay damages, and offer each and every victim a personal apology. That report by the BBC's Adam Easton. It's 8.44 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Africa Rise and Shine. Africa Zorza. Africa Amuka na Unai. economics update up next with Wisani Matebula. Thanks, Lulu. Good morning. Head of the World Trade Organization, Roberto Azevedo, has warned that escalating trade wars could pose real risks to the global economy. U.S. President Donald Trump is locked in a trade war with China involving billions of dollars in tariffs and counter-tariffs. Without mentioning the United States and China, Azevedo says their political steps need to be taken to solve the crisis in global trade. A complete breakdown in international trade cooperation would see a sharp rise in tariffs, knocking up to 17% of global trade growth and 1.9% of global GDP growth. Now, these effects would cause significant disruption for workers, firms, and communities. Potentially, millions of workers would need to find new jobs. European Union leaders uh, will reconvene later for the second day of the summit in Brussels. They decided overnight that despite intensive talks with Britain, there's not been enough progress on Brexit. The BBC's Kevin Kennelly reports. The idea of an additional EU summit in the middle of November was designed to draw the UK into a final burst of deal-making to carry the first phase of Brexit over the line. But closure on the so-called withdrawal agreement is proving stubbornly elusive. It's been described as 90% complete, but the final 10% is the final 10%, precisely because it's the hardest part. That boils down in the main to failure to find agreement so far on how to avoid a hard border in Ireland in the future. South Africa's Minister of Minerals Resources, Gwede Mantashe, together with the Mine Health and Safety Council, 
hosting the 2018 Occupational Health and Safety Summit in the East Rand, in just outside of Johannesburg. Government, business and organized labor will collectively assess progress made in attaining the objective of safety in the mining industry. South African mines are some of the deepest in the world, making it dangerous for underground mine workers. Managing Director of Chevron Nigeria, Jeff Airwing, says Nigeria must urgently take a advantage of opportunities for investment in the gas sector to transit from an oil-based economy to a more integrated economy as well as end routine gas flaring. Speaking on the sidelines of the 2018 Nigerian Gas Association Conference in Abuja, Erwin said there was a need for deliberate exploration for non-associated gas to support the Nigeria Gas Master Plan with a focus on high liquid yield non-associated gas resources to optimize the gas development project economics. Nigeria is a net fuel importer despite being Africa's biggest crude producer. And the four major cell phone uh, providers in South Africa will testify at the Competition Commission's market inquiry into data services and prices. Between them, MTN, Vodacom, CELC and Telcom are said to have around 30 million subscribers. The Commission has heard that access to affordable internet is a human right. William Baird of uh, Media Monitoring Africa says access to the internet is fundamental to people's dignity and ability to succeed in life. This is about the people that live in our country, not necessarily about those that are lucky enough to be here. So it must be driven by human rights and it must also look at providing critical skills, especially for the marginalised. So again, it is about the cost, but it must also be about ensuring that people have the skills in order to engage. And if we're going to succeed in the next 15 or 20 years, Every one of our citizens needs that, because if we don't, again, we may not even be here to discuss this. The US dollar trading at 10.43, Botswana Pula 11.91, Zambian Kwacha, BRICS currencies, it's at 3.71, Brazilian Real 6.543, Russian Ruble 7.328, Indian Rupee 6.92, Chinese Yuan 14.2, South African Rand. Also trading at 76 pence to the British pound and 86 cents against the euro. The commodities market gold $1,228, platinum $839 per fine ounce, Brent crude oil down $80.48 per barrel. That's how it's looking. A sports update up next was Figle Lingwati. Now sports update this hour. After two days of working out with the Kia South Africa tennis team, captain Marcus Andruska feels the players are in their best possible shape yet Ahead of the weekend's upcoming Euro-Africa Group 1 playoff Davis Cup tie against Portugal starting on Friday. Speaking at Wednesday's afternoon's pre-draw press conference at the Thai venue club Internacional de Football in Lisbon, Portugal, Andruska says he's very pleased with the condition of the players. Portugal have fielded their strongest possible side to play Kia South Africa and the captain Nuno Marquez says with South Africa being such a strong team, they had to use all the advantages a host country was allowed. 
and South African wheelchair tennis aces Khodazo Munjani and Lucas Sitole have qualified to take part in the NEC Wheelchair Tennis Masters in Florida next month, the season finale to the Uniqlo Wheelchair Tennis World Tour. The International Tennis Federation season-ending championship for the world's top wheelchair singles players will be hosted for the first time at the Ustan National Campus at Lake Nona, Orlando, Florida, from the 28th of November to the 2nd of December. The two stars are among a star-studded list of 22 players from 13 different nations who will be battling for honors. Next year's athletic season could be a tricky one for South African long jumper Luvo Manyonga following the advent of Cuban teenage sensation Juan Miguel Ecavaria. Our London correspondent Geshem Nyati reports. The Cuban upstart Juan Miguel Ecavaria ended the 2018 athletic season as the world number one with a massive leap of 8.83 meters. Should the 19-year-old continue with his breathtaking exploits, the whole lot of world-class long jumpers are in for nothing but the wooden spoon. However, on the other side, South Africa's Lovo Manyonga, an Olympic silver medalist and reigning world champion, is not bothered by Juan Miguel Ecavaria, who seemed poised to take the world by storm. Ecavaria won the World Indoor Championships in Birmingham, beating Manyonga into second place. However, Manyonga progressed to win the IWF Diamond League Series for the second time in a row, but got defeated by fellow South African Samai Rochoel at the Africa Championships in Nigeria. And in boxing news, Mexico's Canelo Alvarez says it will be a challenge to fight a new weight class when he takes on Rocky Fielding of Britain for the WBA Super Middleweight title on the 15th of December at New York's Madison Square Garden. Alvarez and Fielding promoted their upcoming bout in New York City this week and the fight will be Alvarez's first since his September victory over Kazakhstan's Gennady Golovkin for the unified middleweight world title. Fielding has admitted that the fight will be a test of his talent as well. I'm very confident. I, I wouldn't take the fight if I wasn't confident. You know, I know, I know how, how much of a good fighter he is and our lead fighter. You know, he's, he's, he's very big at the light middleweight division. He's, you know, he's, he's you know, not as big as the middleweight division so he step up again to super middleweight. You know, I'm a big super middleweight. Um, I come down to see the middle way he's going to come up, so um, it's going to be interesting. It's a challenge for him, for the new, new, the new weight, but it's also a big challenge for me, as in you know the experience, the elite fighter, and the big fight he's been in. And you know this is my first, my first one, and you've got to start somewhere, and and, and Maria. The 31-year-old Fielding is on a six-fight winning streak that improved his record to 27 with only one loss, with 15 knockouts. He won the WBA Super Middleweight title with a technical knockout of German Tyrone Zuge in July. That, that's unbelievable. That, that's, that's what we dreamed of since we were a kid, you know, to be a world champion. But growing up as a kid, I used to watch the fights at Lyle Madison Square Guys to get up at like 4 o'clock in the morning to watch it. Um, and now, now I'm headlining there. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. It's probably a dream come true to me. So I, I'm going to take it with both hands. That's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine.
Afrika Zola Afrika amka na unai Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa, Nigeria's President Muhammadu Buhari urged to resign. Gambia launches Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the WHO expresses concern over Ebola outbreak in the DRC. That wraps up Africa, rise and shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumutura Magaza and Komutsu Mopulane, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.org, WhatsApp on 277-6300327, or tweet us at Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to southern Africa is Diamond Platinums with a song titled Utanipenda. <laughs>